Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey, it's Adam Carolla letting you know about my newest podcast, Going Racing. Me and Matt, the moderator, DeAndrea, that is. We'll uh, highlight the fastest cars. We'll talk about the best races and the best celebrities in motorsports. Subscribe now at Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I was going to have Ben Golliver on, great Ben Golliver of Washington Post on, at some point in the near future, and then when the Russell Westbrook trade happened, I thought it was a perfect time to have him on to do a what starts as a quick reaction podcast. We talk about that for most of the first half, but then we get into just what has been an absolutely insane offseason overall throughout the league and go in a bunch of different directions. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Episode runs about an hour. We start with Rockets and Thunder, but then we move into the LA teams, the Warriors, and a really fascinating discussion at the end on the Bucks. something that I don't think has come up enough as a lingering storyline going into the upcoming season. So go through all that. Hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. Uh, it never stops. I know we say that basically every single day, all summer long. Um, the musical chairs game is just getting out of control. And, you know, today the latest is, you know, uh, Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook. Yeah, I mean, you and I had talked about doing a show, and I always had it in the back of my mind that there could be something that happens that could be the impetus for it. And we certainly got that on Thursday evening. And it, it's a fascinating move for a lot of different reasons. But I think the part of it that I, I feel like starting with, maybe it's because I'm a CBA nerd, is that just due to the way these contracts are structured, Paul and Harden, sorry, not Paul and Harden, Paul and Westbrook make exactly the same money for the first three years of this contract, though Russell Westbrook, of course, has a fourth year by virtue of the Supermax extension that he signed. It's amazing. Uh, and it's it's one of those where like everybody's floating out the Miami idea or the Detroit idea or whatever. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. What if you just flop all-star point guards with the exact same... Uh, you know, dollar amounts and, you know, similar degrees of flaws, if it's health related or age related decline or whatever it might be. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. But to me, when you're looking at the actual terms with Houston giving up multiple picks and multiple protections, you know, pick swaps, uh, in addition to that extra year, you know, taking on that burden from Westbrook, I love this deal for Oklahoma City uh, a lot more than I like it for Houston. And I just I keep coming back to this idea that, like, does this trade happen? If 
Harden and Paul are even okay, or even on like, you know, not even just like actively hating each other, but like anything, uh, you know, to the left of that on the spectrum of relationships, or like they don't have to be best friends, but if they're not mortal enemies, is there enough motivation for Houston to do this deal as is? And to me, I'm probably lower than most people on Westbrook, but I just don't see it. You know, I don't think that there's that much of an upgrade by, you know, going a little bit younger, going a little bit more explosive. I think there's going to be all sorts of fit questions between uh, James Howard and Russell Westbrook on the Rockets uh, next year. I think there's a lot of stylistic uh, you know, differences in terms of how those guys like to play. Um, and for me, if I could have had my choice of just going forward with Chris Paul and trying to, you know, uh, tinker with things around the margins or to blow up and, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, officially enact a divorce between Chris Paul and James Harden. Uh, I know I would have gone for the more conservative approach and I would have just kept those picks and and kept those swaps and and gone for it that way. So to me, that's the red flag. I mean, clearly it was untenable between the stars in Houston. That's a reasonable interpretation. And what strikes me about this is it certainly sounds like, and and really it, it appears that the argument, if should there be one, is more in terms of degree rather than that there is a conflict between, you know, the existence of a conflict is kind of understood. However, the degree of the conflict is, has been argued that was a, a more frequent po- topic of discussion a few weeks ago because all the other insanity wasn't wasn't as present as it is right now. But the Westbrook Harden one, yes, they have a personal connection and I, I believe affinity from their time spent together in Oklahoma City in a very different time in both of their careers. But what what makes it so interesting to me is that while Harden and Paul, it appears they that they did have conflict and at least a portion of that was personalities and off the court, I'm concerned because to me, Westbrook and Harden, they have a much weaker synergy and I would say a negative one on the court. And it can happen. It absolutely has in the past that players who are oil and water, that they can kind of make it work. These are two incredibly talented basketball players, two of the three most recent MVPs in the NBA. That's an incredible statement to have those two guys playing together. But Harden a large part of his value derives from the fact that he is this otherworldly offensive talent. And Westbrook, you know, force of will, all those sorts of things. But for me, why why I'm so concerned about this trade from Houston's perspective is that every possession, every touch, every shot that comes out of James Harden and goes to Russell Westbrook, you know, unless it's the worst shots for Harden and the best shots for Westbrook, you know, like some of the transition stuff, with, let's put it in that in that part— you know, that's, I think it's going to weaken the Rockets' offense. And by and large, you know, when available, I think Chris Paul has been a better defensive player than Westbrook as well. Westbrook could be a good fit for their system. Maybe it activates him a little bit and all that. But yes, it does seem like there was the conflict between those guys. Maybe the relationship was untenable. But I'm concerned that this one can turn that way because the players don't mesh together well. For sure. I mean, I think that, like, you know, trying to pick your teammates based on buddy-buddy stuff is rife with the potential for it to blow up in your face because, you know, as with all of us, we see the best out of our friends, uh, you know, especially, you know, if we're not, like, living together. But now they're roommates, and now you start to see all the warts and the annoying things that your friends might have uh, once you're, you know, dealing with them on a day-to-day basis. And look, a lot has changed for both Harden and Westbrook in the last seven years since they were together in Oklahoma City, obviously. And Westbrook is now going to a situation where he's absolutely the number two guy. Um, and he's number, he's the number two guy to someone who backed up, you know, and was a sixth man, uh, the last time they played together. So the roles are, are totally different. Now, in terms of the fit issues that you're describing, I mean, for sure, Westbrook makes their spacing, uh, when Harden is in isolation worse than Chris Paul. There's no question about that. 
I think when you're saying, all right, well, they're going to stagger the minutes so the ball's in Westbrook's hands, what does that look like? Well, we know how he wants to play. It's up and down. It's frenetic. It's putting pressure on uh, opposing defenses and everything else. But what we saw what happened in Houston was that Chris Paul started to play more like James Harden the longer it went on, right? More isolations, uh, you know, slower, deliberate style of play. And so now you're saying, well, when these guys are on the court together, they're going to play James's way, which means slower and isolation and deliberate. And then when James is off the court, they're going to play breakneck with Westbrook, potentially. And if you want to get the most out of them, that's probably what you want to do. And then when, when Westbrook's off the court, you're going back to playing, you know, James's style of this slow and deliberate thing. That's really tough for all those supporting guys. And I also think it's kind of tough for Dan Tony because how do you kind of juggle those competing interests I think it's really difficult. I also think you have a major issue with how effective these guys are uh, when they're off the ball. You know, I think people are going to be cheating off Westbrook like crazy, I think, uh, you know, to help on Harden because they're just going to be daring him uh, to to make them pay with the jumper. And then I also think when Westbrook has the ball and and God forbid he starts to get into isolation situations, you know, with his shooting efficiency where it is at this point. Now you've got Harden just standing and watching, and that's basically the worst version of Harden that there is, where he's not actively involved and he's not allowed to be a threat with the ball in his hands. So uh, to me, those are all, you know, real pretty serious, grave concerns. And then the defensive stuff, like you mentioned, uh, you know, it's definitely tricky. Part of the reason why they were able to hide James Harden defensively and use him against post-up guys or or bigger players and just take him off the major defensive assignments was because Chris Paul was still a very competent, uh, if not good, defender this late in his career. He was definitely engaged. You know, he's definitely playing hard. He's giving you good effort. Uh, and he's not taking crazy reckless decisions, right? He's not breaking the scheme. Uh, he's just sort of, you know, out there holding the spot and capable of guarding, you know, most of the you know top level players that are out there in terms of, you know, guards. Westbrook, to me, it, it's kind of the opposite thing. I mean, he's going to be breaking the system constantly. A lot of times he's, you know, standing and watching from off the ball. Uh, we saw he just got torched by Damian Lillard in the playoffs. Uh, and he's somebody that in a lot of cases, if you had your preference, you try to hide him, too. And I just think it's very, very difficult for a team like the Houston Rockets, who wants to be title contenders, who want to get over the hump, who want to finally do it to have their two best players potentially need to be hidden uh, or, you know, at least kind of, uh, you know, thrown into uh, complementary or secondary defensive responsibilities uh, because of how, how much they do on offense. And I think, uh, you know, that's a, a fundamental question. And so if you're looking at some of these pairings that are out there and you're telling me like, OK, you've got. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, who are both big time plus defenders, especially in the playoffs, who can switch through lots of different positions and really impact the game on that end of the floor. And then over here with Houston, the big two is Westbrook and Harden. And both those guys are lucky to be treading water defensively. I mean, that's kind of a night and day comparison. And so from that standpoint, uh, it's almost like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't even consider it at this point, I think, Houston in that top tier of West contenders, frankly. And where you just got to is, is the next point that I wanted to, to make, which is I don't think that some of the complaints that have been lodged both by me and, and by you during this podcast and also, you know, various people over the few hours that have happened since this trade occurred and, and us recording – I think a lot of those concerns are valid, but they are more playoff specific. You know, teams don't usually do a ton of tactical stuff game by game. You know, you're planning for a team, though in in the case of like Russell Westbrook, where his weaknesses are so well known, it is a little easier to do that because that can be a player internally just giving him more space. It doesn't have to be a whole schematic shift. But 
the Rockets, as far as I can tell, especially based on what Tillman Fertitta said after after the playoffs, it seems like they're defining success based on the postseason. And that is when these things can absolutely happen because you face the same team up to seven times in a row. You get so much more advanced scouting and planning and adjustments over the course of the series. And Westbrook, I think that's been one of the hallmarks. I mean, there was the yes, and especially in Russell Westbrook's MVP season, it was notable that they made the playoffs at all. However, there is this factor, even with Paul George, that and some of it is bad matchups and bad luck and all that sort of stuff. The Rocket, the Thunder, including a couple losses to the Rockets, the Thunder have not won a playoff series since Kevin Durant left. And I think part of that is because teams have gotten smarter, Russell Westbrook's game has become more pronounced. And it is hard to imagine even, I mean, because remember, he just played with an all-NBA MVP caliber teammate. And yes, it is true that a Billy Donovan system and a Mike D'Antoni system could be different. I think that there, there are reasons to be optimistic that we could see the most effective Russell Westbrook of his career. But is it fundamentally different than before? And do the issues that will come to pass that are pretty obvious to see right now does that, as you said, like, does that take them out of the, the top tiers of title contention? And if that's how ownership, how everybody else defines success, is that just really catastrophic for them considering now it seems even harder for Houston to make another move? For sure. I mean, they've got themselves with two of the biggest contracts in the league and, and kind of boxing themselves into a corner. And so if anything does go poorly, it's going to go really, really bad and it's going to be hard for them to pivot out of it. Uh, never say never with Daryl. He always comes up with something, you know, but uh, I do wonder if this is going to be like, a, you know, a real uh, milestone moment where we kind of look at like, OK, well, Harden was competing for titles there for like three or four solid years straight, just couldn't get over the hump against Golden State. And, you know, this trade sort of effectively ends that era. I'm not trying to be too alarmist, but, you know, just to underscore what you were saying, it's not just that the Thunder didn't win a series after Kevin Durant left. They didn't even come particularly close. And they lost to three teams where uh, they were either equal in experience or had more experience, right? I mean, you're looking at a young um, uh, Utah Jazz team. You're looking at a, a Portland Trailblazers team with lots of, uh, you know, relatively uh, inexperienced postseason players. Uh, and I also think that, you know, you mentioned the, the pairing between Westbrook and Paul George. Not only was that an MVP player, that was an MVP player who fit better with Westbrook. You know, he's an, uh, an elite defender who kind of covers up for Westbrook a little bit on that end. He's a more malleable offensive player where if you need him to step forward and become sort of the main guy, he can do that. If you need him to step back a little bit and be a complimentary player, like I think Paul George is going to be, uh, you know, more so with the L.A. Clippers, where he's sort of the number two and Kawhi is the clear cut number one. Paul George is capable of doing that, too. You don't want James Harden to be anything except for the absolute number one player. And I think, you know, it boils down to does what Russell Westbrook make Harden's life easier in any meaningful way? Does it make it uh, better, uh, especially in postseason matchups? And I'm not sure I really see it. I think Westbrook's, you know, biggest, uh, uh, I guess, strength on paper would be the idea that he can really put a lot of pressure on the defense and get uh, to the foul line. And that will really help James because you're just living in the bonus. And that's, you know, Harden's great strength. But Westbrook's free throw rate uh, in terms of how often he's gotten to the free throw line the last couple of years has definitely dipped. I think there's real questions about, OK, has his athleticism, you know, fallen back 15 percent or something like that for maybe where it was uh, a few years ago? And is that impacting why he's not getting to the free throw line as much? I mean, clearly he was trying to be more of a distributor last year. So that's a factor. 
Uh, but I don't think it's the only explanation for that. And so if Westbrook's not getting to the free throw line at a crazy rate, we know he's not going to be finishing the ball that well. We know he's not going to be hitting the, the mid-range jumper or the three-pointer uh, you know, like you would hope for someone who takes as many shots as he does. And we also know that even though he racks up assist numbers, he's not the most natural distribution-minded player. Uh, I mean, all of these things to me, it's like, how does Harden benefit from this? And, you know, frankly, I'm kind of judging James Harden a little bit here in terms of his taste in the superstar players, because we've seen so many of these guys pair up. Right. And it's like the idea that Kawhi Leonard wanted to move heaven and earth to get Paul George. I got to say, I got a lot of respect for Kawhi Leonard's taste in terms of his superstar partner. Same deal with LeBron James. Anthony Davis is an ideal superstar partner for, uh, you know, for, for LeBron James at this stage of his career. The, the youth, the athleticism, uh, the finishing capability, the pick and roll uh, aspect to it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense on paper. And same deal with, uh, you know, Kawhi and Paul George. You're looking at poor man's version of, of Michael and Scotty, right? That, it's easy to wrap your mind around. But for Harden to pick Westbrook, and for Kevin Durant to pick Kyrie Irving, those two decisions, it really makes me kind of look at them sideways and say, Kevin, what do you see in Kyrie Irving and, and James Harden? What do you see in Russell Westbrook at this point of your guys' respective careers? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. But it's also important to remember the lack of flexibility and choice that Harden, let's, Harden slash Maury, let's put it that way, had in the matter because Chris Paul's on a way worse contract. It wasn't just a cap space situation. So that is is a factor here, as is it sounds like Kawhi. I went after Jimmy Butler first. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, I would still like that pairing better than the Westbrook and Harden pairing. Because, oh, again, I think Same here. Yeah, like uh, Butler is a better pair, right? I mean, or a better complement to what Kawhi is trying to do. You know, and I understand. I mean, look, and Kevin Durant's in a tough spot too because he's injured. So like, you know, is he able to get like the absolute best A-list guys to potentially team up with him on the Knicks or whatever else? I mean, he's got one hand tied behind his back a little bit there. Uh, no question. But still, like, I think the personalities in large part are driving some of these moves like this. There's no way this move happens unless James is like, look, I just can't deal with Chris Paul anymore. And I want to play with Russ. Like that's the impetus for that move. And same deal for the, you know, the way the Nets thing shook out like Katie and Kyrie Irving are clearly friends and they clearly have a, a huge mutual appreciation for each other's style of play. And they wanted to play together. Right. Um, and I just, I just kind of wonder like, uh, is that going to come back and bite them, right? And for well, Houston, if, if you want to uh, tie in with the Harden and, or sorry, with the Kyrie KD one, the DeAndre Jordan factor in all of this, that yes, they did, it sounds like, concede a bit, a bit of money each other to do that, and also the, the cap wizardry that Sean Marks did, but they also brought in a player who I believe is a worse fit with those guys than a player they already had on roster. You're worrying, worrying about alienating him. And it does seem like that was primarily personality over basketball as well. Right. And I think, you know, what we're coming to find out with these players, you know, requesting trades like Paul George, you know, demanding trades like Anthony Davis. Um, I think the teams, to a certain degree, the front offices are a little bit at the mercy of their star players' whims. I think this is like the next extension of sort of player power where it's not just I'm going to dictate what my future is in terms of where I'm going to sign and for how many years and, and everything else, but it's I'm going to dictate who I want to play with. And, you know, I don't really care what your viewpoint is on the roster or where we stand or if I should try to, you know, play nice with Chris Paul and, and try to let bygones be bygones and, and move forward with a group that was pretty darn close to winning a, a title here these last couple of years. Uh, I'm just over it. And, you know, you have to accede to my demand or, 
you know, next thing you know, you know, James Harden's the one requesting the trade, right? So uh, I think it's tricky. I mean, I I feel for the executives involved in this. I definitely feel for Presti being really put on the spot by Paul George. I thought he did a brilliant job uh, with the assets he was able to get back. And I also thought he was really smart to move quickly here and just, uh, you know, one, involve Westbrook's uh, priorities in the, the trade negotiations, make sure he's happy and taken care of because that's the best way uh, to sort of maximize that return package, right? And then at the same time, I feel for Maury because uh, I just wonder if, if you gave him truth serum and you said, OK, forget about the personality stuff. Would you have done this deal if, if or would you have skipped doing it if you had the op- uh, opportunity to do that and, and Harden wasn't so upset? I just have a hard time believing he would have done it. Yeah, it's it's totally a fair point. And I think that is a natural lead in to what is, is one of the more striking takeaways for me of the last week, which is that I think Oklahoma City ended up in a very different place than they anticipated, let's say, when the playoffs started. Or even, I would say, when they lost, when Portland and Damian Lillard waved bye-bye to them at the end of the first round. Doesn't that feel like a lifetime ago? Well, let me ask you, Danny. If he doesn't hit that shot and somehow OKC wins that series, do they trade either one of these guys? Or are those guys happy enough to stay? Well, I don't think they. I don't think Presti trades Paul George unless he comes with that demand. That might have still happened just because Kawhi and the Clippers. That's that's a really great opportunity for PG. But I think it's a lot less likely, I, and I think that's fair. And so that's why this is so important to me is because. I brought up defining success. It, it, to me, is one of the Rosetta Stones for understanding not only the way the league is, but the way the league should be. And my belief is that Paul George's trade demand and everything that happened related to that put Oklahoma City in a better place than they would have been otherwise, and that it was the impetus for that, and it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Because it was so easy to point to Paul George's double shoulder injuries as the reason that the Thunder disappointed in the year if they had gotten a better seed they could have been more competitive and and maybe even made the western conference finals and then who knows if they beat the warriors all that kind of stuff and yeah there is an argument that you know if you that they could have rolled double sixes you know that that sort of a thing that 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 could have happened if they run it back entirely possible i do not want to discount that possibility i was a believer in the thunder for a long time and especially because their decline seems so tied to paul george getting hurt not being the same guy that said they got an absolute haul for Paul George. They got assets, I would say, in return for Russell Westbrook, those those two picks and then the, the swaps. I think the swaps can be written off at least a little bit. And for what would have been, I think, an unlikely or fringe shadow contender, now some ownership groups, some management groups are totally cool with that. If you can make the playoffs every year, be competitive, win a series or two, that's fine. But if if they weren't cool with that, Presti ownership more importantly, this was an unbelievably fortuitous way out of that little trap, not only from a you know long-term asset management because of the, the sheer amount of picks that they got, also getting one for Jeremy Grant, but also because they can get out of the tax. And they did it in a way where I don't think they seem like the bad guys. You know, so from a fan, like season ticket holder, anger perspective, I think they come out of this looking pretty clean. There's no question that Presti, uh, I think he has this uh, image that he's like a wonk, you know, and he's, he's so mysterious. And I think that, uh, you know, it's almost like uh, he's so calculating that, you know, it's easy for some people to think, well, he doesn't have a human side. And I think he displayed a real 
obvious human side here. I mean, number one, the two stars who he had painstakingly worked to kind of pair together, he traded them to the places that they wanted to go. So I think that, you know, ultimately he can like be proud of, of doing right by those guys who were his partners in Oklahoma City. And he preaches that stuff constantly. Um, but he also did right by the organization in terms of, uh, you know, being able to make logical return packages that he is going to be able to put to use in a potentially you know a wide variety of ways but on top of that he pulled the plug at the right moment you know as soon as paul george makes that trade request um his carefully pl- laid plans went kaboom he didn't pull adele demps and you know try to ride out you know a, a sticky situation where that had an inevitable end right um he didn't drag his feet and think, oh man, I'm going to get killed in the papers if I trade Russell Westbrook. So I can't trade him. I have to, uh, you know, hang on for dear life, uh, to a guy who is a a local legend. Uh, he made it into a situation where, uh, the communication with the fan base is, is pretty easy. It's look guys, um, we were put into a tough spot. I did the absolute best that I could for us and for these guys that you have really cared about and cheered for, for a long time. We have to go through a rebuilding process. These kinds of things happen. Um, but, uh, you know, we did it, uh, you know, living up to what their requests were and we didn't wait too long. And, and ultimately, the unsaid part of this is nobody wanted to see Westbrook versus the world, the sequel. Right. I mean, it was it was fun and it was kind of you know, uh, entertaining in 2017. That same act was going to be a lot bleaker and a lot darker in 2020 if they had tr- tried to roll forward with, with Russell Westbrook especially if he has already said, hey, I want to go play on a different team and they haven't you know, taken care of him on that end. And it was only going to get bleaker, the older and less efficient that Westbrook got. And so I think that, uh, you know, Presti, you know, winds up saving himself, you know, some backlash down the road uh, for, you know, signing Westbrook that, to that gigantic contract, which I think, you know, one or two more knee surgeries and maybe one or two years down the road. And it's a lot more difficult to move that thing as a positive, uh, you know, trade asset uh, than it was this summer. And, and I think he also, uh, you know, prevented sort of a sour chapter from developing where, uh, you know, everybody who had bought in so much of that Russell Westbrook mythology, uh, and that was frankly the entire city there. I mean, in the entire state, really, that whole region was all in on him. And it just became clear here over the last couple of years, he wasn't going to be the guy they hoped he was. He wasn't going to be able to get them over the hump. And Rather than letting that other shoe drop, he just niftily sidestepped it. uh, And now he can go forward with a a totally different story, one that's kind of built around promise and hope and youth and uh, and the future. And I think that, uh, you know, it's going to be a painful ending. No question for all those fans losing this guy they've idolized. But I do think it could have been a lot worse. To make a a television analogy, this is kind of like the show that gets canceled a little bit too early and everyone's bitter about (laughs) it because they wonder about it. But at the same point, if it had gone on longer, maybe it would have betrayed its own legacy and everything like that. So I, I agree with you that I think this could end up working out well from their perspective, especially because Russ versus the world at this stage in their career, I think it would have it would have led to a different result and anything less than the spectacular success that it was the first time around would have been seen as a, a disappointment that it would have been harder to recover from. Um, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, like, what was the ceiling for the Thunder? I think that's a really important question. Once they make that Paul George trade and they're not getting back a superstar level player, like they're getting back a good, you know, good player and a really nice prospect with Gallinari, uh, you know, and with Shea. But if you roll forward with that group, what's the ceiling? 
to me, the ceiling is like seven or eight seed, maybe. Uh, and I think that there's a real good chance they miss the playoffs. And so, uh, you know, at, at that point, when you're not even being able to kind of talk your fan base into the idea that you're competing to win a playoff series, something that they haven't been able to do, it's already a noticeable step back. And I just, in general, I'm not a big fan of the halfway rebuild, right? It's like rebuild or don't, unless you have a very clear path for retooling. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's better to just, you know, play the asset game, especially if you're somebody like Presti, who's shown that he can be really, really creative in putting together trade packages involving draft picks and, and things like that. So, uh, the other aspect that I didn't mention earlier in terms of people who win here, I think we'd be remiss not to point out that OKC's ownership is a big winner here too, right? Because they were completely slammed with the luxury tax entering the summer for a team that was going nowhere. It seemed like it was going to be very difficult for them to auction off smaller pieces around their stars to still keep a competitive product on the court while also trimming their tax bill in an important, you know, in a major way. And what they've done here is totally realigned kind of their spending with their expected performance, right? Where if they get, you know, one more trade here, they get out of luxury tax entirely. They finish in the middle of the pack as a team potentially next season. That's much more in line with where they should be compared to where they were kind of from a, you know, a, a value proposition for ownership, uh, you know, earlier this summer. And look, I understand why fans wouldn't care about that, but that's part of the job. If you're Sam Presti too, it's a, maybe the, even the most important part of the job, uh, all things considered. Uh, and he executed that pretty brilliantly too. He did. And it won't take too much for them to get, to get all the way below. And I I'm, I'm a little bit less confident that they're going to do necessarily the full teardown, at least immediately, just because somebody like Steven Adams might be a little bit harder to move. And they have some intriguing young guys. But what I think they're going to do is maybe play out the string a little bit, see if you can get somebody. I mean, like if, if the summer had gone differently and they could have done a Steven Adams trade, I wonder what offers were on the table, if any, for that sort of a thing earlier. Because now, given what happened with Paul George, maybe they would have rather, you know, done that, just gotten all the way out, ripped the Band-Aid off. But uh, we talked about the PR benefits of that. And yeah, it, it is a, a really interesting situation for ownership financially well, and all that. Let oh. me ask you Let me ask you a question real quick. Would you trade Chris Paul at this point if you were them? Would that be your next move or would you wait, would you wait until the deadline to do that or would you look to do that uh, ASAP? The standard lawyer answer here, it depends. But it really does because if a team sees Chris Paul as a positive value or even close to it, you do it. I think Paul is not one of the worst, absolute worst contracts, but in that kind of next tier where it's, like, it's going to be very hard for him to live up to it. And there are a couple of reasons why. One very basic one is it's a lot of money and it's hard for a non, you know, a non super elite. And I was banging the Chris Paul drum for such a long time. I think his historical place in the point guard discussion is going to be very, very interesting. And I think I'm going to be higher on where it is than most, but it's a lot of money and it's a lot of years. And remember, he also doesn't play that much per season. Now he's always going to, ha- you know, there are these persistent injuries. You want to be judicious with his minute load. So if a team like Miami comes calling or somebody somebody overvalues him or just thinks he's the right fit for it i think it works a lot better to just move him now and then you avoid avoid any of that stuff however if it's seen as a straight dump i wouldn't do it right now yeah i wonder if they would be able to you know like the whole miami talk with westbrook uh, i could understand why miami would be a little bit more reluctant to part with things that we would consider some of their best assets in that deal especially because of that final year for westbrook uh 
I think with Chris Paul, I mean, again, you're not going to be putting in like, you know, a great piece, but would they be willing to give you something along with like Dragic's contract and maybe one other contract where, you know, Presti can sell it as a win. He can still go forward with a capable starting point guard veteran guy with Dragic. And, you know, now you've got, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, even more assets potentially, but then also like at least still some level of respectability in the short term. Uh, to me, I think that might be preferable. I think actually it would be preferable to the, the prospect of Paul's contract hanging and maybe getting more onerous if he, you know, deals with another season of injuries or his game starts to, to really decline even more sharply than it already has. Yeah, I agree with you. That would be a, I think that would be a pretty significant win for them, especially considering the flexibility that would be added. And yeah, it's true. OKC is probably not going to be a free agent destination anytime soon, but they can use that cap space in other ways. That could be taking on bad money in trades. It can be as a facilitator. We already saw the Clippers, even in a season where they ended up using a ton of cap space, being benefiting significantly. Memphis is another great example here. They did it with an exception rather than cap space, but it's the same idea. And I could imagine, assuming Presti is still in power, that he could do a good job of managing that plenty more to talk about with ben gulliver but first the message from betonline.ag we have reached the midway point in the baseball season and also the upcoming weekend is one of golf's greatest tournaments the british open and so there's only one place that you covered one place we trust that is betonline.ag sign up today for a free account at their website and use the promo code podcast one for your 50 percent welcome bonus we are about a week away from the british open i attended the last major in person went to the saturday of the u.s open which was incredibly fun and it can be a great way to engage with it, whether you're focusing on an early round or you want to pick a winner for the whole thing, and to, to stay engaged with it. It's a, it's a great tournament, and it can be a lot of fun. So you don't need to sit on the sidelines anymore. Get in on the action, and don't forget to use that Podcast One promo code. Alternatively, you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669 to receive that 50% welcome bonus. Get in on the action at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. I know that your time is valuable now, but I wanted to kind of quickly run through some of the other things. And I guess the place to start is probably in your your adopted hometown of Los Angeles with the two power teams, maybe not super teams, we'll have to see where it goes, but two definitely title contenders in Los Angeles. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I had a piece this week on the Clippers. I'm actually a little bit more intrigued by them than the Lakers uh, from a basketball perspective. Just talking to whether it's coaches or scouts and, and executives here in Vegas, um, it's funny because the Warriors set such a high bar for what it means to be a favorite that like, even though most people were willing to say, Hey, I think the Clippers are the most likely team to win the title. That's was the conversations I was having. There was a lot of hesitance, right? And there was a lot of people saying, look, they're not the Warriors, right? The normal rules apply. They're one injury away from disaster. They're not going to be able to make it through the West. If any of their stars are banged up, or even if a guy like Patrick Beverly is missing time, um, and so there was much more of a hesitant tone towards appraising the Clippers. But at the same time, there was an awful lot of respect uh, for what they were able to kind of put together and the very interesting combinations they could put out there. I mean, I had one coach say, you know, the idea that you could play the two stars, you know, with Harkless. And so you have almost like a three wing rotation, lots of length, lots of interchangeability. And then, you know, you put them with one big and, and Beverly and you go forward with a, a really you know fierce defensive minded team that's tough that uh, you know you could just you know hawk the ball basically as soon as they get over half court uh, and really screw with teams flow. I mean I think that sounds really really fun to watch for me. And then I also think this idea that 
usually when new stars come together, it's pretty easy to potentially drive drive wedges, you know, or to envision how it might not work. Like we were just talking about with Westbrook and Harden, like you know, those are two alpha guys. You know, at some point, one of them is going to be upset over the number of touches and shots and a roll. It's going to blow up eventually. It's kind of a matter of when, right? With Paul George and uh, Kawhi Leonard, I don't know exactly where those potential, uh, you know, fault lines would be. I mean, I think that both those guys are pretty comfortable, uh, you know, playing team basketball, playing system basketball. I think both those guys are pretty low-key personalities off the court. I don't think Kawhi Leonard will care at all if Paul George is more famous than him. And then, you know, vice versa. I don't think Paul George is going to get upset if Kawhi gets to be the closer, right? And so uh, I think if you're saying, okay, who's got the strongest sort of nucleus uh, among all these new pairings, I feel like that's a really, really strong nucleus from a personality standpoint, from an offensive fit standpoint, from a defensive versatility standpoint. Uh, and then the, the big question for them is just the health factor. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, the Clippers have a lot of depth around them. Uh, I also think that, you know, now that Steve Ballmer's had a taste of the success in terms of like going out there and landing some big fish, he's exactly the type of personality to just keep going, right? To like pursue Andre Iguodala at any cost, to try to be a super active player in the buyout market, to see if he can, you know, turn up another rotation guy by trade, uh, you know, before the deadline. I mean, I think that he's going to sort of have that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, blood in the water type approach where it's like, look, this is our moment. We've got Kawhi for basically three years. Uh, we need to go ahead and just go all out to do it. And, uh, you know, so I, I think to me, even though the Clippers are always going to get, you know, second shrift to the Lakers, whether it's in L.A. or whether it's the national conversation or anything else, I actually think they're the most interesting team heading into next season with the most interesting set of options and, and kind of like, uh, you know, first the pressure of being the favorites, uh, but also like an owner who's just shown that he's just absolutely ruthless and willing to do anything it takes to win. Uh, from that standpoint, like I think they're kind of the best story in the league right now. The other reason that they're so interesting, and you, you talked about this a little bit, but it bears emphasis, is how they were able to build a competent, compelling roster around those guys. Being able to retain Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, Landry Shamit, Magruder and Zubach through bird rights and then bringing back Jermichael Green and Moharkos, who I think is a fascinating piece with this team. And so, yeah, those guys aren't really star caliber players. Patrick Beverly, I have to mention him as well. That, But I think they fit really well with where this goes and it allows Doc Rivers to have options. And I think having options is really important when a team is just figuring it out because they don't know what they're going to be yet. They don't know what their best lineups are. So at least they have the pieces. So it's not a situation where oh crap, this doesn't work, we have to make a trade, it can be no, we experiment maybe now Harold's you know, starting or coming off the bench or Lou Williams is playing with those guys. And I think that's a really good thing for the Clippers. Would you say they're the deepest team in the league right now? They're in the conversation. I mean, the Raptors yeah, are obviously I, now out of it. And I mean, yeah, I, it, it's to, hard. To, because, me, to me, they are because their top two are so good, right? Like, I mean, you could look at like, I don't know, Denver, Utah or whoever else you might want to put into that conversation. But like, I definitely think they're deeper than the Lakers. I think they're deeper than the Warriors, you know, given all the change uh, that they've had. And so, you know, like they have the combination of all the quality depth that you've mentioned, but also like a top two that is a really, really good top two. I think they kind of win it by default. They might. I, I think I just need a little bit more time to process it to know. But yeah, they they have a great roster and they have a lot of different looks. And I love a team that can have different looks. And the Lakers have some of that. I, li 
like I really like Danny Green there. I think that was very fortunate for them that Green was still on the market and then that he was interested in taking two years and $30 million with them. But they do have, to me, less variability, less malleability. And I think that could be a real problem for the Lakers, as good as they are. And they're, they're yeah. top-end talent. I think I think in some ways the Lakers are being underappreciated, partially because they missed the playoffs and LeBron, you know, it wasn't – it was far from his best year. But it is true that they have less versatility. For sure. And I think that they're underappreciated because they have a lot of guys who are kind of punchlines. And so it's easy to sort of mock some of their secondary moves in the aggregate because it's like, oh, they're taking on, you know, Boogie Cousins and Rondo. Oh, boy. And like those guys are, you know, pretty easy targets. But I absolutely agree that the the Clippers have more versatility, more line of versatility and stylistic stylistic versatility. And I also think that, you know, from a matchup perspective, like I would rather be the Clippers with, uh, you know, their two stars being able to use those guys on LeBron James than, you know, having the Lakers stars and trying to figure out how to handle Kawhi Leonard, uh, you know, and uh, Paul George. Like, I don't know really if the, if the Lakers have a good you know, answer for either one of the Clippers stars, frankly, whereas the Clippers have two good answers uh, for LeBron James, you know, reasonably good answers and nobody can solve him. But then, you know, they do have a question mark in terms of how they handle Davis. But I just think that the superstar matchup battle favors the Clippers there. Uh, and also, when I'm trying to put together, say, like a closing five for the Lakers, you know, Green's definitely in there. The two stars are in there. Uh, you know, you probably have Kuzma in there. Uh, I'm just wondering who's that fifth guy right now. And maybe they don't have him yet on their roster. And then, and then maybe they still go looking for it. Maybe it has to be Jared Dudley, you know, in the interim. Um, but I don't think it's Cousins, right? I don't think it's any of the other bigs that they've got. Um, and I would hope that it's not like KCP. You know, maybe he's the default answer or one of the default answers at this point, too. Uh, and I always just get nervous. If you don't have a clear-cut, really intriguing closing five, uh, that you know makes my skin crawl a little bit. Whereas with the Clippers, I think you can close with the two stars, Harrell, Lou Williams, and Beverly, and that's a squad. And if you want to take Lou Williams out of there uh, and throw in you know a little bit of added length with another wing, I mean that's a really nice squad too. So uh, you know, to me, uh, I, you know, on, on the kind of the key variables of like who could be elite on offense and elite on defense, I would say the Clippers, yes, and the Lakers probably not. Who has better, you know, superstar matchups between the two of them? I would say Clippers uh, win that one. Who has more lineup versatility? I would say the Clippers win that one. Uh, and so from that standpoint, uh, you know, that's why I would I would kind of peg them uh, as the early favorites to win the West, although clearly, you know, not overwhelming favorites. The defense for the Lakers is a big concern for me, and Davis has so much to prove on that end of the floor. He came into the league with, you know, defensive player of the year, all that kind of potential, but he hasn't really done it consistently on the Pels. And I mean, to get their identity there now, LeBron has had a fastball defensively in the past, but it's a little bit it's a little bit in the past. And so where can they get to, you know, Kuzma hasn't been that type of a player. Danny Green obviously has. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where it turns where where that turns out. But I think the last place I want to turn with you just briefly is your interpretation of the Warriors summer and basically the decision to take on D'Angelo Russell, sacrifice Iguodala, a couple first round picks in order to make it happen and kind of where this team goes from here. Um, well, I think that uh, the Russell thing was another one of the ones that was among the biggest surprises to me of the whole summer. Did you feel the same way on that or did you kind of sniff that one out? I should have sniffed it out more. It made some sense for me. I'm actually working on separate pieces for The Athletic. I'm going to write the argument for and the argument against. And the argument for, even though it's not something I agree with as well, it's a pretty clear case. And a lot of it comes down to 
getting value back, you know, and, and also the importance, and this is something we've seen in a lot of deals recently, of just having big contracts. And, you know, all, Russell, he is a bigger swing. He is an expensive player. But it would have been exceedingly hard for the Warriors, even with just Curry and Clay, to really add those high-end expensive talents. And they don't have the assets to get like low-end high-end, you know, low-end, low-cost high-end talent. Like let's say the next James Harden trade. Like they're not going to be that team. That's going to be more somebody like Boston or maybe OKC if Presti wants to go all in and something like that. The Warriors never had those pieces. So instead going after a more expensive player, presumably with Russell, like it makes some sense. But I didn't sniff it out, even though I should have because the Durant net stuff had some legs. And I think a lot of us kind of thought that might be coming. Right. So here, here's the thing. I don't love the fit with Russell on the Warriors. Uh, you know, I think people have kind of gone through the stylistic, you know, potential clashes there. I'm not. A, I'm just not a big fan of him in general. I think the shot selection and you know the lack of you know getting to the the rim and getting to the foul line and you know the defensive question marks. I mean, to me, those are all things that just kind of grind my gears. But not only is he that bigger salary player that you're talking about, but you know he's also like got a proven market, right? Like Minnesota is out there dying to get him. They really, really want him. So you're not going to get stuck with him. It's not a situation where like, you know, the hand wringing over, oh, are you going to give him a max or not? I mean, to me, that was just like completely bogus. Like there, it's not a risk from that standpoint to me, uh, unless he would to get hurt. But, you know, you can't predict that. Uh, I was all ready to say, look, the Warriors are in this natural cycle where you lose a superstar for nothing and you have to take a major step back, right? Like we've seen that from all three of LeBron's teams. We saw that from uh, the Thunder when KD left. Uh, you know, we've even seen that like going back to the Lakers when, you know, they trade Shaq and obviously there's a, there's a step back after that move. Um, I think that there is going to be, you know, they're coming back to the earth. They're no longer unbeatable. They're lost a lot of institutional knowledge with the, the veterans who, uh, departed. Uh, there's going to be a lot of teaching being done by Steve Kerr next season in, in ways that he just didn't have to kind of like teach younger players um, at various points. But being able to keep Looney and then being able to get Russell and potentially flipping him into like, you know, one or two really quality rotation players uh, at some point, you know, next season, uh, I think it, it kind of uh, prevents against the backslide in a pretty meaningful way. And if Clay was healthy, I would be prepared to be very, very uh, optimistic on like what their regular season would look like. I just think that the cloud lifts with no Durant. Uh, you know, the chemistry is already there between their core guys. Like everything would be kind of set up, you know, to surprise a lot of people. The Clay factor makes me a little bit, uh, you know, less bullish on Golden State. But to me, they should still definitely be a playoff team. And it, it kind of, you know, when you're looking at whether it's Houston now. Uh, or whether it's Portland or, or Utah. I mean, if Golden State's matched up head-to-head in a playoff series against any of those teams and they have Clay back and he's even close to, you know, 75-80%, I like Golden State in those series because they're going to have, you know, arguably the best offensive player in Curry and the best defensive player in Draymond Green um, in terms of how playoff basketball is played and, and what those guys have been able to, sh- to show they can do here the last couple of years. So, uh, I think I still prefer the Clippers overall uh, to the Warriors. I think that LeBron being able to go against this version of the Warriors uh, without Iguodala, with Clay potentially limited, um, you know, without Durant, obviously, I would favor LeBron in that matchup for the first time against Golden State. Uh, you know, in in many years. Uh, but past that, you know, I think that they deserve to be right there in the conversation uh, among some of the most intriguing, uh, you know, second tier teams in the West. The other thing that this 
trade allows the Warriors to do is play it by ear a little bit this year. And so they can just see January, February. And I know there are people who like to think the roster you have on July 15th is the same one you're going to have on April 15th. But that isn't true. And so if things go a little differently and they're outside of the playoff race, you know, maybe it's an injury or something else. Well, then they can pivot. They can go in a different direction. And if they're competitive and looks like Clay's on schedule and everything like that, then you go for it. And both paths are more possible now than they would have been before when they're dealing with Iguodala on a potentially expiring contract. It's a lot harder to move him for whatever if you wanted to go in that direction. So yeah, it's it, it's a painful thing. And I I don't think Russell is kind of that, that he's necessarily worth it, quote unquote, though, it, of course, it depends on how other teams value him. But it's it's fascinating. That's for sure. And I do think that it gives that it gives management more flexibility now and moving forward as long as and that's a huge italicize underline all that kind of stuff. Russell retains his value. But I expect that to be the case. Because even if this season doesn't go well, it is so easy for a team like Minnesota or Orlando to write that off as, hey, he is playing in such a different role with them than he would be with us. It's hard to expect him to succeed. He made the All-Star game last year in his early 20s. I'm not going to be as worried about that. And as you talked about, he has a constituency already. If it's two years, I think that gets dicey, but one year, I think it's okay. Yeah, and look, I mean, if you're those kinds of teams that you're describing, the Minnesotas or the Orlandos of the world, you're looking at this whole summer and thinking, the A-list stars are not ever coming to us. We didn't ever really think that they were, but they're definitely not now. They're aggregating in the biggest markets, the highest profile teams. Uh, They're teaming up with their buddies. And if we don't have somebody who can uh, act like a magnet to attract other high-level stars, we're on the outside looking in. Our only option, our best option, is to settle for a second-tier star and hope that that guy can develop into uh, a first-tier star. And that's exactly what D'Angelo Russell is, right? Age-wise, uh, you know, barely getting onto the Eastern Conference All-Star team last year, but at least, you know, showing that he can, uh, you know, be kind of a lead guy uh, on a team that, you know, snuck into the playoffs last year. And so, yeah, I think his value is rock solid. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I don't see that, you know, I don't see even the worst case scenario in Golden State uh, influencing uh, the wider perception of who he is as a player. Right, especially because there was a lot of signal in last year's numbers that it doesn't seem like people particularly cared about, you know, like the idea of that it was more volume-based than efficiency-based and everything else like that. And I, I think Russell benefited a lot from Karis Levert's injury just because then it gave him more opportunity to explore the studio space on the Brooklyn Nets. And, you know, now getting away from it, whatever happens this season, I think that that could be useful for him. We're, we're basically about done here, but I, I did want to open it up to you if there was anything else you wanted to discuss or anything you wanted to ask me just just before we end this out. Is there anything you're sitting there going, well, hey, hey, we should really discuss this for a minute or two before we go? Well, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, all the action in the Western Conference, we, we dove in pretty deep, but, you know, gun to your head, uh, Eastern Conference Finals, Sixers versus Bucks, what's your pick? I like the Bucks. I, I think that... Ooh. The Sixers, their offense scares me a little bit. I mean, I love Al Horford. I love a lot of the guys they have, but Simmons is not the hardest guy in the world to defend. Embiid is is wonderful, but I do think that he's still like, I've talked before about the idea of an Embiid-Simmons team in many ways being harder to build around than just an Embiid team because Simmons' limitations, he has to have the ball in his hands. We just talked about this with, with Russ and Harden a little while ago, and I think, you know, getting getting the other pieces, Josh Richardson and, and Horford, it puts Tobias Harris in a better place. 
But also, I'm not at the point yet where I think that Philly has the versatility. You know, if their main stuff doesn't work, I don't necessarily love some of their fallbacks. And part of the reason I don't is because they had to give up so much to get Tobias Harris. If they still had Shamit, if they still had some of those picks, and they maybe had some filler stuff, I could see them maybe not being better than the Bucks right now, but being better than the Bucks once they're actualized. I'm less confident in that now than I would have been before. However, I will acknowledge it is a close call. It's I, To me, it's really, really close. I mean, I thought the Al Horford move in terms of weakening Boston and then also helping them match up with uh, Giannis a little bit more effectively and just, you know, giving yourself a, a really impressive interior duo and putting all the pressure on Milwaukee's supporting cast to beat you in a playoff series. I thought that was, uh, you know, a pretty underrated, and I don't want to call it a masterstroke, but a really nice chess move uh, by Elton Brand. I thought he was backed into a corner and, and, and made a pretty impressive play there that, you know, had major implications for sort of two of the biggest teams that they're always kind of competing against at this point. Uh, I think that, you know, the potential for Giannis to just absolutely rip off another crazy regular season in an Eastern Conference that has been just decimated this summer uh, is, you know, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty uh, you know, titillating. I can't wait to watch that. I mean, he's certainly going to be making uh, a play to repeat as MVP. Um, I just worry that uh, the Bucks are going to be in a situation, and I don't know if you agree with me on this. I think they face more pressure than any team in the entire league next season with the looming free agency of Giannis, with the idea that they've sort of locked in that second star Middleton where his contract is so big, I think it's going to be hard to trade him for an upgrade uh, where, you know, they've already made the decision not to go spending crazy and to part with a guy like Brogdon and where the rest of that supporting cast is composed largely of playoff question marks and guys who at key moments faltered this year uh, when, you know, Giannis had put them in position to, to potentially make the finals. It just kind of feels like a referendum season to me where if Milwaukee makes the finals, everything's probably hunky dory and they can go forward with Giannis. But if they don't, if they fall short and, uh, you know, it, maybe if they spin out of the postseason sort of like they did uh, this year, where like all sorts of things that we thought they already had answers to suddenly became questions again. Uh, that puts them in a real, real tricky spot next summer, uh, you know, with Giannis's free agency kind of pending around the corner. And so from that standpoint, I think they face more pressure than, like you mentioned, Golden State kind of has an off year. I agree with that 100%. I think the Lakers, because they weren't able to get the third star, you know, some of the, the pressure and scrutiny is reduced there. I think the Clippers, because they've not, never done it before and they have no history, people still want to see them prove it before they start treating them like the overwhelming favorite. Uh, you know, a lot of these other teams, you know, Houston's been remade. Uh, so it's not like they're running it back with Chris Paul and, and uh, you know, try, finally trying to get over the hump. I just kind of feel like Milwaukee is going to be getting more scrutiny than they've ever faced previously, you know, with this group, obviously, uh, and really almost more than any other team near the top of the charts. They're number one, and I don't think number two is particularly close because a lot of the other high-end players are on multi-year contracts, and Giannis is too, but it's a different sort of ticking clock, and because there isn't the same honeymoon period with, with the Bucks as there is with all these other teams because, you know, it takes some time. I think all these players understand that, even with Kawhi winning a championship in Toronto. You know, I think PG understands that. I think LeBron and, and AD, even though they have a ticking clock with LeBron turning 35 pretty soon. But 
Milwaukee, there's one other huge piece that you didn't talk about. And first of all, this all relates to Giannis is, yeah, they did get something in return. But the biggest reason Malcolm Brogdon is no longer on the Milwaukee Bucks is because they didn't want to pay the luxury tax. And they got George Hill back. But that is a team that is a championship contender, arguably a championship frontrunner, willingly making themselves worse with a young player because they just didn't want to pay him. And I can imagine... If this season, especially if this season doesn't go as well as as they hope, and the expectations are sky high, they were the best team in the league in the regular season, and I expect them to have the best record in the league next year, assuming health, you know, all things equal from that perspective, if they don't make it far, because one of the big reasons why would be because they downgraded, they lost Malcolm Brogdon, they didn't replace him because they didn't want to pay him. And yeah, it probably was an overpay, but the teams that should overpay for players are championship contenders or championship favorites. And I think that's a really important part of the story that when we look back, you know, just like, and I participated in this, the post Kevin Durant stuff of like, what were the lines in sand? I wrote about the Harden trade and all these other things. I'm not saying Giannis is going to leave. I'm not making any sort of prediction. But if that comes to pass, I think the Brogdon situation, I don't think people are appreciating how important that will be in that conversation should it happen. It's like the canary in the coal mine basically is what you're saying. Right. And it's it's a completely preventable situation. Now, there is an argument to be made that, hey, the team would have been so much more expensive. He Brogdon's a good player, but he doesn't add that much. The offer from the from the Pacers was too strong, maybe even a little reckless. But a lot of other really good teams have taken that sacrifice, have, have gone after it. And even teams that didn't have the same title contention. I mean, look at Oklahoma City. I don't think they had the same upside as the Bucks showed last year ever in the post-Durant era. And they were willing to go into it. And the Bucks haven't been super expensive for all these years. They haven't gone into all that. And you have a generational talent, young enough that we could still expect him to see, see him get a lot better. And you combine that with, this is paralleling OKC to a point, that their plan Bs are horrible. If Giannis <laughs> says, I'm not I'm not committing to an extension, I'm not resigning, whatever that is, even if you get a haul for him, the whole rest of their team makes no sense. And it all falls apart. And they're really good players, but they're also not necessarily on value contracts. Brooke Lopez got paid. As you said, Chris Middleton got paid. George Hill got paid. And so it's such a strange line in the sand to draw and I think that there's a lot more. I I I can see it. I don't want it to happen. I love the Bucks. I don't want anything to happen to them. I love Giannis there, and but it, he of course has the right to do whatever he wants. But I can just I can see what one of the paths that this can go down. And I don't like when I see these paths as clearly as I see it. No doubt, and that's why they sign his brother, right? And I was like joking two years ago. You got to sign all the brothers. And like, I mean, like that. They're kind of at that stage where uh, you have to. Start appeasing your superstar in every way that you could possibly think of to keep him happy. You know, the one final point I'd make on them, and we can probably call it a night, but Boonholzer is in the mix for a lot of this pressure, too, because he was able to unlock Giannis in a way that we didn't see any of their previous coaches do it, right? The offense goes to new heights. Giannis's numbers go way up. It's all so smart. It's all so logical. Uh, but the, the the questions about the lineup adjustments, you know, popped up again in the postseason. And his minutes treatment of Giannis, to me, was baffling. When all these other stars are playing s- such significantly uh, you know, greater uh, loads during the postseason than Giannis did. And he just stuck to it, you know, no matter what. And let's be real clear about this. Giannis wants to play every minute of every game, right? So every time you're limiting him to like less than 35 minutes a game, 
that works in January and February when you're telling him, hey, we're saving you for the playoffs. But Giannis is starting to get to the point where it's like you can't baby him in the postseason. You've got to sort of, you know, appease him. And to me, you know, they and that season ended on a really sour note. But uh, for the entire organization, it didn't go the way they thought losing four straight games to Toronto. But I also think it ended in really bad fashion for that, you know, Coach Bud Giannis relationship where it's like all of these bargains that uh, you know Coach Bud had been making along the way to try to keep some of the miles off of Giannis, you know, make his life uh, easier, get him to trust his teammates and all of that, it kind of blew up in his face because those guys didn't step up and because the minutes management uh, stuff, to me, it contributed to some of those losses against Toronto where, uh, you know, they're losing the minutes without Giannis, you know, so badly that, uh, you know, what's your buy-in at that point if you're the superstar? If the vision isn't coming to fruition, uh, aren't you going to start raising some natural questions? So I think that's, uh, you know, one other variable we should watch here. I mean, Coach Bud, a very deserving, you know, coach of the year, incredible work, but I don't think we should just automatically say that that's a, a perfect partnership and that they're on the same page about everything going forward because, uh, you know, Giannis is only getting more established in the league. He's only getting older. He's going to be looking around and seeing the kind of minutes that Harden plays, the kind of minutes that LeBron plays in the playoffs and, and Kevin Durant in the playoffs and, and all of that stuff. And he's going to be wondering, like, wait a minute, like, you know, why am I not on that same level? And I'm not sure Bud uh, is prepared to uh, adjust on that front either. And I hope he does because he should. <laughs> yeah. It'll be worth watching, and it and the Bucks could be a team that we're really in a holding pattern on them until, say, like May fifteenth, because unless things go horribly wrong, there isn't really much more that they can prove in the regular season. Even if Giannis wins another MVP, we'll kind of know that, and then there'll be Western, sorry, Eastern Conference Finals, NBA Finals. Where are they? And the reason it's going to linger on those two things is because it sounds like that's what matters to Giannis. And I think that's just kind of the end, the point to end on here is that a lot of these situations end up with an audience of one. It is what does that individual with whatever their idiosyncrasies are, how do they interpret this and where do they go with it? That was definitive for Paul George, for Kawhi Leonard, for Jimmy Butler, any number of these players. They can want whatever they want. And part of what makes our job so fun is that we don't know that. But those individuals decisions are the centerpiece right now of the NBA, at least of July. No, no question. I mean, we're seeing it. Uh, those guys, they run the league, they run the sport, and, and it's more and more influence every year. And I think the, the, the smartest teams are aligning themselves and are just acknowledging that they're not pushing back against the wave. They're rolling with it. Um, I think that's why you saw the Lakers in the position that they're in, the Clippers in the position that they're in. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Rockets kind of the same deal. And we'll see. I mean, there's going to be you know, varied uh, success levels for those organizations, probably. Uh, but, you know, I think that what the past they chose are probably better than the alternatives. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Danny. Great chatting. Take care, man. Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read him at the Washington Post, and you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Golver, B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love having him on. His perspective on this was was fantastic. And you can read, of course, his great written work. He referred to it a couple times, the stuff he's done on the Clippers and everything else. I don't know if this is going to be the last shoe to drop. I, I genuinely don't. But still have a lot of great, I mean, so much great stuff in the offseason. And, and this will probably be the impetus for going a little bit more broad scope, you know, moving forward. I'm going to do the division by 
division stuff that's going to start probably in August and then also have some other big picture stuff that's coming in, which is going to be pretty cool. And then I'll do some more specific. I have some guests that I'm talking to about doing some more interesting stuff. So I'm looking forward to that coming up in the near term. That is a great reason to subscribe, download every episode. Real Jam Radio runs 52 weeks a year. Don't know what day, so that's why it's good to subscribe and download. And leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player you're choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not. But if you want to be super awesome and use something else, you can write a review both places. But the single most important thing you can do to support this show and any other show that has them is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. You can also read my work at The Athletic. Dunked on, Nate and I have basically broken down every single signing, every single trade, including the Westbrook trade, Westbrook-Paul trade, that we we recorded that actually basically right before I recorded with Ben, and tried to make them two very different conversations. So you can listen to both of those, no problem. As I said, Real Jam Radio will be back next week. I have, I guess, kind of lined up. We'll see if it ends up happening. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I'm not great at responding necessarily, but I read it. They go into a separate thing. I make sure it's important. I don't want you wasting your time. So we'll be back next week. Topic TBA, guest TBA. But thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.